Welcome to another edition of This Week in Digital Trust, 11M's regular conversation about all things tech policy, privacy, and cybersecurity. I'm Arj, uh, and I'm joined again by Jordan. Hey, Jordan, how are you? Hey, Arj, I'm good. Recording a day early this week because I'm looking forward to a long weekend. Yes, yes, this will be, uh, people will be listening to this on the other side of what I'm sure is a great long Easter weekend for everyone and yeah I too am looking forward to that so if you're listening I hope you had a good weekend yeah if you hope you had a good weekend and um the Easter bunny was was kind and generous but it was it it has been a big week on this side of the weekend um which was uh mainly because of a very big conference that is uh relevant to our industry that being the the global privacy summit 2022 uh, which is in Washington DC. Have you have you ever been to a global privacy conference, Jordan? I haven't. I'd love to go. It's they're, they're fantastically nerdy events, right? And the I've been to the ANZ one a bunch of times, but never made the trek to DC. Yeah, the conference. It's run by the um, International Association of Privacy Professionals, and uh, we work with them domestically in the ANZ region. And and but yeah, just to see the scale of of what they put on over in uh, over in DC, it was pretty cool. Um, so we're going to talk today primarily about a couple of the big speeches that were made at the conference um, by some pretty big names, um, namely Apple CEO Tim Cook and Federal Trade Commission Chair Lena Khan. Uh, they both delivered keynote speeches, so we're going to get into those. So let's start with Tim Cook's speech because I think it was fair to say it was probably the most anticipated speech of the of the conference, just given you know given the the stature of Apple and of, of Tim Cook. And sure enough, you know it was live streamed and it was also picked up by you know U.S. cable news like CNBC and Fox News, which you know we were discussing earlier is pretty wild to think of a privacy conference getting getting that kind of coverage. Yeah, so Tim Cook kind of picked up on something that Apple have been doing for a few years, which is sort of really making privacy a positive differentiator for their brand and really going big on, you know, how much they care about privacy. So that, you know, with all of that momentum, he kind of came into the conference and delivered a keynote, which really kicked off around re-emphasizing the value of privacy as a sort of fundamental human right that underpins kind of, you know, us as humans and as creative beings and um, then kind of very much spoke about the role that Apple plays, of course, in protecting us from threats to that privacy, namely the sort of data industrial complex um, and how Apple has very specific measures in place to kind of protect us from hackers and, and you know, safeguard not only our security, but then in turn our privacy and then he did an interesting pivot, sort of having spoken very positively about privacy and, and, you know, why it's important. He started to talk a little bit about competition regulation that's been coming and been talked about in the US uh, and how some of this could put all of this privacy protection at risk and all of the great things that Apple does to safeguard our online experience uh, could be put at risk by some impending competition regulation. And, you know, he really kind of planted a flag in the sand, I think, for everyone to see around, you know, how strongly he felt about that. And then he kind of closed out the speech, quoting Alan Weston around the in- inevitability of technology and pushing back on that idea and saying, well, actually, privacy is in our hands to sort of safeguard and stand up for. It's not an inevitable consequence of technology that we're going to lose it. And it really comes down to what decisions we make, what we kind of value today. 
So sort of brought us back, I guess, to the start, but quite a compelling speech in many ways, in some senses controversial. What stuck out for you? The polish stuck out, if I have to take one thing home, you know, like his products. It's just very well produced, right? Great speech, he knows his audience, he's, you know, really amping up the room full of privacy professionals with the importance of privacy and rights. And like you say, some good quotes from Alan Weston, who's a you know, luminary privacy figure from like the 50s. Great quotes. A world without privacy is less imaginative, less empathetic, less innovative, less human. You know, great. You know, let's pumps us all up. So that was good. It was quite enjoyable to listen to him. If you had to have any tech CEO at a privacy conference, it would be Tim Cook, right? Because Apple has, for the last like at least 10 years, leaned quite heavily on privacy, um, much more so in the last few years. But it's always been kind of a core part of their differentiation strategy against, say, the other big tech giants. I mean, I, I remember I was working at the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner in 2014, and I remember even back then they were coming in giving us presentations on how privacy engineering wasn't really a thing back then, but they were giving us presentations on the privacy engineering of their products and how they, you know, take real care to keep customer data on the phone and not collect what they don't need to and so on. So it really is something that they've been leaning on quite heavily. And it's something that I think they take quite, like it's serious. It's not just marketing. Yeah, I, I, I think the the cynic in me sometimes that comes up is that, you know, they're, let's say, lucky that their business model is more about selling devices than kind of information-based services like a Google. And so they have the benefit of not needing to breach privacy uh, if you know to the extent that Google needs to breach privacy you know that there is that sort of cynic in me that says that but by the same token like you say I think they genuinely have made kind of architectural and software based decisions that do good things for privacy and you know don't look a gift horse in the mouth if you know one of the leading tech companies wants to be strong and pro on privacy well I'm happy to take it exactly right they're still a shareholder owned driven company they're motivated by the the logic of capitalism and shareholder value and so on we are just fortunate that privacy protection aligns quite well in the way that they build and design well in the way that their business functions in that they sell devices and subscriptions rather than advertising. So yeah, I, I, I'm not pretending it's a altruistic move on their part. It's definitely profit motivated, but it's great. You know, it's we're, we're all better off for it, I think, or at least those of us who are iPhone users. Um, but that, and it is genuine, like I say, like iPhones are genuinely more secure. I think there's studies and evidence about like volume of malware on devices and the cost of an exploit and so on that kind of points to iPhones being relatively more secure than, say, Android devices in general. You know, and they're active in terms of legal battles with law enforcement refusing to put in backdoors or to comply with law enforcement requests where they don't think they're appropriate or where they think they would um, compromise the integrity of their ecosystem. There was quite a famous case a few years ago about the San Bernardino terrorist attack and Apple refusing to cooperate with the FBI to get into an iPhone related to that attack because it would have required you know, implementing a, a backdoor that would have compromised more broadly the security of their ecosystem. 
you know, they also recently withdrew from a lobbying group in the US, one of the key um, tech lobby groups in the US, which has been pushing for weak federal privacy laws. And, you know, in again, in line with their commitment to strong federal privacy laws, they've backed off from that coalition. So they do, in a lot of ways, put their money with it where their mouth is. But yeah, it also was a bit of a clangor to me that pivot into competition reform, right? The weaponization of their privacy credentials into this claim that essentially the claim seems to be that we need our monopoly in order to protect your privacy, right? And that competition law reforms um, that are being proposed or litigated in the US and elsewhere at the same time as they attack their monopoly position, say in the App Store, those law reforms will compromise their ability to protect our privacy as well. Yeah, I mean, clangor, I think, is a good word for it. And it, it did feel a bit jammed in. And, you know, I, I can see it strategically. I mean, you know, th- there's this move in the US to sort of address these monopolies of the big tech firms. And they're sort of gearing up to fight this thing. And they see as one of the best ways to fight it, maybe to sort of talk up the fact that at the moment they're safeguarding privacy and security. And if you were to break up and open up the Apple store that, you know, they've decided their line is that that would harm privacy and security. And then you're having that kind of strategy conversation in your boardroom and then an invitation comes in from, you know, the world's largest body of privacy professionals and to make a speech. You're like, well, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to go and speak to their heart for the first 20 minutes about how awesome privacy is. And then I'm going to try to enlist them in my fight. You know, of course, it strategically makes great sense. I, I can see why they did it. But I do wonder, like you, whether it was a bit of a clangor and maybe even a bit of an own goal in the end because, I mean, at least in some of the coverage and discussion I've seen, there's a lot more focus now on, you know, that anti-competitive aspect and, and how the app store is not particularly fair terrain, but also you've started to see people who are passionate about privacy and security sort of stand up and start to sort of poke holes in the argument, you know, in the, in that idea that the app store is somehow a perfect model for privacy and security, you know, because there is a lot of criticism that it's actually not the case that, you know, you're doing this just to protect your business model and their self-interest. But as as it stands, actually, there are plenty of apps on the App Store that do contain threats to privacy and security, that do contain scammy behavior. Yeah. So I, I don't know if we summarized this in the lead into this, but the, the competition law proposal that he picks out to oppose, right, is this requirement to allow what's called sideloading or alternative app stores on iPhones, right? So Apple has complete control over the iPhone ecosystem. If you want an app on an iPhone, you've got to run it through the Apple App Store. They take a 30% cut, roughly, slightly less in some circumstances, but basically a 30% cut of any money that flows through the App Store, which was like 60-something billion dollars in revenue for Apple last year. So, you know, seriously big business there. And they don't allow anyone else, they don't allow any other way of, of getting an app onto an iPhone. So the proposal is that, hey, maybe in the interests of competition, we should require Apple to allow alternative app stores on the phone. Apple's criticism is, well, you know, we do a lot to vet apps in the App Store and that protects you. An alternative app store, if we allow it, could be extremely dangerous, who knows what's on it, totally out of control, makes the world less safe. That's their, that's their kind of argument. The key thing it overlooks 
is that an alternative app store is not necessarily less safe, that there might be a alternative app store that applies all of the same protections that Apple provide, plus, you know, maybe it's an app store only for kids apps, right? And it does an extra layer of vetting and control and doesn't allow subscriptions and, you know, whatever else it is. It's entirely possible to imagine an alternative app store that is much, much more safe and gives people more choice and more options and more control over the apps that they use. It also potentially overstates how secure Apple's own app store is because, um, you know, that they have a sort of team of human moderators that are there to moderate and experts like Bruce Schneier, who's a security expert, have pointed out that, you know, that, that capability has, has frequently missed threats to privacy and security and, and, and seen kind of apps that are, you know, being promoted by scammers uh, make their way into the app store and there was a great quote by the head of their fraud engineering team which is that, that that whole process of trying to moderate apps for security and privacy was like bringing a plastic butter knife to a gunfight you know that's their own kind of head of um, fraud engineering saying how futile that fight is sometimes so it's not a perfect solution either you know there's a, a guy called Costa Elefteru who describes himself on Twitter as a professional app store critic you know, he, he, he makes it his day job to go and find these apps that are basically scams. And he makes the point that the marketing that Apple does around the security and privacy of its app store actually leads people to let their guard down. You know, they don't exercise their own level of kind of caution and, and, and awareness because there's this marketing push around like this is the secure and privacy preserving app store just download and use whatever you find there so um that is the other complement to what you're describing which is that there could be a more secure app store as well that's exactly right like all those scams really put the lie to that claim that we are the only people who could possibly protect you and we do it so well and we need our monopoly in order to do it that last bit that you've just mentioned as well that we need our monopoly in order to do it is kind of something that tim cook said as well he kept using this phrase around like you know, you're taking away a more secure option as though by opening up and allowing sideloading, allowing apps to be put onto other app stores that Apple somehow would no longer be free to continue to apply secure and privacy preserving measures like it does today. You know, what, why is that the case? That the only thing they're not supposed to do is unfairly preference their own apps, you know? Yeah, exactly right. Any other app store is not necessarily less secure, right? That's the claim that he is trying to make, that any other app store will necessarily be less secure. And, and yeah, it's just not true. The last point we wanted to touch on, I think, was his point right at the end of the speech, once he'd moved on from the, the competition question and he was back to vibing with the crowd, which was um, this kind of theme against technological determinism. The quote is essentially that technology is neither inherently good or bad, right? It's up to us to design, to shape, to determine what technology is. He says, it's a mirror that reflects the ambitions and intentions of the people who use it, the people who build it, the people who regulate it, which I think is like, I think is a really quite interesting thing to come, especially from one of the key people who is responsible for building a large part of the technological world that we live in. And it's something that we often forget, right? Like a lot of these tech giants often like to present the tech world 
that we live in as inevitable. You know, it couldn't possibly look the other way. You know, we couldn't possibly imagine a world without Facebook and we couldn't possibly imagine a Facebook without a like button and without a com. You know, the very specific design choices that were made by the engineers building the things, but they're such a core part of our life that it's so easy to see them as like necessary and and inevitable. And so it was quite interesting and quite powerful to me as a place to end. All of this stuff is designed by people and we can shape it and we can choose the future we want to live in. Yeah, I agree. I think it was quite intriguing. The framing of it as a battle is like one of the most essential battles of our time I thought was really interesting because then you sort of ask yourself, who's the battle between? Like, is it between the technology giants and utopians on one side and then people who want to sort of preserve privacy and humanity on, on the other? But then which side are you on? Because you're, you're like, you're, you had up Apple, one of the largest tech companies in the world. So, you know, who's battling who here? But, I, you know, so I thought that was really intriguing. And then like you, uh, just the fact that it's not, it's not a fait accompli, it's not, predetermined that we have to just let technology run its course at the expense of privacy yeah absolutely that confusion as to what side tim cook is on i think is a really good note to move on to the second speech we wanted to talk about which was lena khan's because broadly you know very simplistically he's on our side the right side obviously on the privacy question generally speaking but he's very much not on the right side on the competition question right and that's what lena khan is more focused on so just to summarize what she or who she is right and then what she spoke about so she's the chair of the federal trade commission in the u.s which is you know their equivalent of the ACCC, um competition consumer protection regulator in the absence of comprehensive privacy laws in the u.s the ftc is essentially their privacy regulator they do a lot of privacy enforcement actions around consumer protection and around misleading and deceptive conduct in terms of how data is handled so yeah, she's also, I just looked this up, she's 33 years old and she's the chair of the, the FTC, which I think is wild. Like she's such a meteoric career. So she's, you know, tremendously impressive. She had a, a keynote um, at the same conference where she spoke broadly about the, the FTC's regulatory objectives and approach under her leadership in the coming years. So she she starts her speech with just some context setting. You know, she's talking about the digital transition that was driven by COVID and our growing dependence on technology and how that's not been experienced equally. Some people have been left out and and she pivots that into the need for regulation, right? The the depth of data collection and the lack of general limits on how data can be monetized and how harmful business practices emerge about scams and targeted ads and discrimination in targeted advertising, data breaches and the need for regulatory intervention. And so, you know, that naturally leads to how the FTC is responding under her and her approach for the coming years, which we'll probably talk about in, in more detail in a second, but it's, you know, a focus on scale, right? Value for money, focus on the big platforms at what she called dominant middlemen, the organizations that deal with the most people's data and, and have the greatest impact. She emphasized an interdisciplinary approach. Uh, combining consumer protection and competition, but also, you know, privacy and, and a growing reliance on technologists in the commission, not just lawyers. Um, she emphasizes designing effective remedies, you know, remedies that are directly informed by the business incentives that various markets favor and reward. 
which we talked about just the other week about, you know, attacking the motivator, not just fines, but attacking the algorithms or the data collections that might be produced through illegal conduct. And then she also perhaps most interestingly speaks about the need to update the laws and frameworks under which they operate. So, you know, she calls for a federal privacy law in the US, but she also talks about how notice and consent and transparency is kind of outdated and insufficient as a regulatory tool. You know, they can't just rely on misleading and deceptive conduct. And she speaks about the need to consider substantive limits on behaviour rather than just procedural protections, which I think is quite an interesting statement. Um, what was your takeaway from from her speech, Judge? Yeah, it was it was one of those ones where it surprised me how much I sort of uh, got into it, if you like. I mean, it's sort of a bit wonky, but Federal Trade Commissioner gives a speech on privacy, and I think it was because she laid out kind of some pragmatic approaches, but then there was this kind of undercurrent of like her philosophical approach to things that was coming through, which I think we'll we'll get into that a bit later. But I just wanted to talk a bit about some of those specific things because I think there's some interesting kind of parallels with stuff we've been seeing here. I mean, the first one's obviously like, I think the scale challenge around like we're going to focus on big players to maximize impact it really to me sort of echoes some of the stuff we've seen out of the ACCC trying to sort of pick targets and pick fights, if you like, with Google and, and Facebook and really sort of make a bit of a mark on these bigger players and kind of set a tone. There's a real parallel there, but then the call-out around dominant middlemen is really significant because we talk probably not enough about the role of data brokers. You know, all of our conversations around, you know, whether it's the Privacy Act or whatever, are always about like what an organization is going to do with their customers' data and so forth. And then there's this whole ecosystem, this shadow ecosystem of data brokers that goes on that are not particularly, you know, well-regulated. And so her call-out around sort of focusing on the dominant middlemen I think is really instructive and very timely because I think the week of this, there was a big story on John Oliver's TV show about data broking, which has made a bit of a splash. And for those that have seen it, he kind of, he's really trying to make a case that Congress need to act on data brokers as well. And he does that by uh, collecting data about Congress people um, and saying, look, look what's possible. So, you know, it's, it's a topical conversation over there, but something I think that, you know, is interesting to hear her signal. Yeah. And it's something that's coming across in Australian law reform debates as well. So that we had the online privacy bill, which didn't actually get passed before we went into election mode, but that was quite focused on putting some higher standards on online platforms, but also data brokers. And similarly, I think the OIC and others have been really advocating for that kind of higher standard for those kinds of businesses in Australia as well. So increasingly recognised as an issue, as coverage on John Oliver kind of suggests. Yeah, the multidisciplinary approach was also, I think, another parallel that we've been seeing here. So this idea that you need to look at privacy through a few different lenses, you know, through consumer protection lens, through a competition lens, and and of course there's the you know the the human rights lens that we often talk about, and and so we've had that conversation so many times now, even you know in Australia about like how are we going to approach these challenges, how are we going to approach the review of the Privacy Act. You know, we can't just look at it within any one of these domains; it has to be looked at holistically, and and even in terms of policy, you know, there's in Australia those moves for a council of tech regulators bringing together people from multiple disciplines to shape tech policy, but then also the regulators themselves across, you know, 
across privacy, across competition, across e-safety, they're getting together as well. So I think that reflects a consistent theme as well. Yeah, for sure. And we we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, right? These are no longer issues that are constrained to one area of life, one area of regulation. You know, there's a real need to have all of these different voices and interests in the room to come to solutions, regulation, design that that can thread some kind of middle ground and, and meet all those competing interests and requirements. So, like you say, pretty aligned with the direction that conversation's moving in Australia. It was interesting there that there isn't necessarily consensus within the FTC. I think elsewhere at the conference, one of uh, Lena Khan's colleagues, FTC Commissioner Noah Phillips, was perhaps leaning away from that kind of multidisciplinary approach. He's one of the Republican commissioners saying that it's inappropriate, in fact, to try to use competition law, which is one thing, to protect or to manage or to address privacy harms, which are a totally different thing. You know, the the focus of competition law should be pure and focused on competition issues and market issues rather than trying to protect consumer interests such as privacy. Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of philosophical stuff I was referring to. I think when you start to pick at that kind of dissent, if you like, between you know, Noah Phillips and Lena Khan, you start to get a sort of sense of these very sort of different worldviews on like privacy and um, how it should be approached. And clearly his comments are sort of very much that this isn't necessarily a purely a matter of competition. And in fact, it might be a confusion for us to sort of think of it that way because small players, small firms are just as likely to violate privacy as big firms. It's just purely about consumer protection. Are they doing the right thing by consumers is really what we should be focused on. And and she's saying, well, there's that, but then there's, there is absolutely this broader consideration around kind of market power and, and, and competition policy. And then just sort of in general, like her, her overall kind of speech was very much framed in terms of power imbalance, I think. You know, the beginning of her speech kind of talks about how she wanted to discuss the new political economy of how Americans' data is treated. And I mean, like, that immediately goes to this kind of much bigger worldview of, like, well, you know, how individuals and organizations and regulators and governments interact and where the power sits. And, and she's thinking about data and she's thinking about privacy in that context. And, and I think that's a much bigger conversation and a much different philosophical view than just saying, well, this is a transactional thing between a consumer and a business and let's just keep it at that. And so the, there were the hints of that that were really interesting in her speech. And then they also kind of relate back a little bit to Tim Cook. You know, he can be good on privacy in one context, but the reason he maybe is not particularly good about it in another context is that he's re-entrenching a monopoly condition and a power condition uh, in the way that he's using it to sort of stop sideloading and, and stop the opening up of app stores. So it is very, very interesting how that all comes together. In the power analysis as well, in Apple's world, we all have privacy and we're all happy because Apple gives it to us. You know, like we're all Apple's subjects in their fiefdom where they benevolently bestow on us privacy doesn't really answer that power question. There's a thread in Lena Khan's philosophy, I think, of privacy fundamentally being a tool for mediating power relationships. If you don't know things about me, you can't act on me, you can't influence me, you can't control me. Yeah, and so then you see how that view then kind of breeds life into specific proposals and ideas. So one of the things we're going to talk about is this idea that she was critical of 
notice and consent as a model for privacy going forward. It's the sort of dominant model at the moment, which is that we tell organizations that as long as you've notified users of your collection practices and then they have consented to it, well, then you're doing okay. And she's sort of talking about the fact that that's actually not a valid way for us to approach that at the moment, you know, going forward. We need to think about this in terms of substantive limits rather than procedural protections. And what she's saying is that are there things that are just off limits, you know, that we don't want to see happen? We should focus on those questions rather than, you know, have certain kind of procedural things been followed. A great example of this is the Weight Watchers case. Um, so a few weeks ago, we spoke about the FTC's ruling against Weight Watchers International who put out this uh, app targeting children. It was like a nutrition and dieting app targeting children. And the ruling against them at the time was that, you know, they hadn't done the right things to get the consent of parents. And so there was sort of a, a fine and some various other measures announced on the back of that. And when you and I discussed it at the time, we said it was a good fine and all of that, but um, we wish that it hadn't have been framed in terms of, you know, just that the parents hadn't consented to it because isn't there a broader question about should we even have apps like this targeting children around an issue like body image and weight? And it was great to then see her kind of specifically make this commentary around, well, actually, we need to think about are there things we just don't want to see happen? She's pushing in a direction that, a lot of other jurisdictions are also pushing as well. And a lot of commentators around the world are pushing. You know, Canada already has what they call no-go zones from a privacy perspective. They have a general obligation that collection, use and disclosure of personal information is reasonable in all the circumstances. And the Privacy Commissioner in Canada says, all right, you've got this reasonableness obligation. Here are a set of circumstances where we don't think that processing is reasonable. So they're just no go. You know, they're, they're off limits, even with consent, even with notice. There's, there's a similar proposal in Australia around, you know, a general obligation of reasonableness in the handling of personal information, which may or may not make it into the revised Privacy Act after the review. But both of those put a set of limits, some guide rails around the handling of personal information and give regulators the ability to say in extreme circumstances, you know what, I don't care if people consented to this. To bring that to life, one of the examples of behaviour that would be off limits in Canada is requiring employees to provide their social media passwords to their employers to check whether or not they're disparaging the organisation online. Something that technically in some jurisdictions you could probably do with consent, but I think we can all agree is like totally beyond the pale and shouldn't be allowed to happen. So it's interesting seeing Lena Khan take the um, FTC in that direction. Um, perhaps the last thing we wanted to touch on there was enforcement with effective remedies. Now we touched on this again with the in the context of that Weight Watchers case where the FTC in that settlement didn't just require deletion of the data and changes of the process, but they also required Weight Watchers to delete any algorithms that they had trained on the data. We spoke about this in the context of Clearview as well, their pivot away from their giant trove of facial recognition images to just using the algorithm which I think is a, a really important step for modern regulators. You know, the whole point of regulatory action is that you remove the incentive, you remove the benefit, you remove the ill-gotten Ill gain from the company that's been misbehaving. Fines sometimes aren't enough to properly discourage behavior. Um, you know, 
Facebook famously paid a $5 billion fine. And the day after that, their stock price went up. So, you know, fines are not always the right solution. You need to give these organizations the flexibility and they need to have the innovation to seek uh, remedies that properly attack the um, the benefit, the motivation, the market incentives for the misconduct. Yeah, I, I, nothing really to add there. I just love the language used in the speech, you know, in this part of the speech talking about these remedies, you know, talking about depriving lawbreakers of the fruits of their misconduct. I mean, really getting to the point of what we're talking about, which is that these practices, if they're baked into the business model, um, can can be highly profitable and we need to sort of unpick those. It's an interesting lesson for Australia right now as well as we, again, are in the middle of a review of the Privacy Act. It's probably in the weeds to get too into detail on it, but there are a couple proposals in there about exactly what the OAIC can order if there's been an interference with privacy and exactly what the federal court could order if there's been an interference with privacy. Um, But suffice to say, preserving that kind of flexibility in how you respond to misbehaviour, I think, is really important and something that we should bake into Australian law. All right. So as usual, I'm going to, I'm probably going to keep saying this every week, but we've gone over so many really interesting ideas in those those speeches, right? And really interesting, I think, to put them next to each other. You know, a lot of kind of similar ideas about the importance of privacy and how you actually get there and comparative importance of competition law. So two really interesting speeches was good fun tearing them apart with you, Arch. Yeah, it was good. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Jordan. Have a good weekend. Happy Easter. All the best. Same, same to you.